today we are wrapping up a series called Material World, and uh, tonight we're going to be watching a program, many of us, uh, most of us I'd say, where uh, it's known equally for its commercials as it is for what the actual substance of what we're going to be watching is. That is obviously the Super Bowl. Um, if, if we're honest, some people here in this room, among us, watch not for the game, but for the commercials themselves. And there have been a lot of famous ones over the course of the years. Uh, and we all have our favorites, you know. We all have the ones that stand out or that, you know, some 20 or 30 years ago that, that, that really still stand out in our mind as some of our favorite commercials. And honestly, the, the timeless commercials, the day of the timeless commercial, I mean, it's fewer and farther between. So uh, I don't have high hopes for tonight, but we're going we're gonna to watch the game anyhow. Um, and we know that next year is our year, so that's going to be really good. But I'd say half of Americans watch mainly for the commercials. And, and that's, that's kind of the reality of the times we're living in. And it really illustrates our point of this series that we are living in what, what Madonna once called a material world. Um, and, and we can get drawn into that. We can get drawn into that mentality of being like, well, if we're in a material world, then, then we are material people. And we are going to live into the world in order to function in this place. And, and we have always been called by God through Scripture to be people who live in a world but not become people who are of that world. That we have another kingdom that's far away. We have another kingdom that we're representing, and uh, we're called to be set apart in that sense, and not to allow the spirit of the day to, to draw us one way or the other, but instead to come to the cross, to come to Christ, and allow him to, to direct our path. And so we, we've been in this series, we've been talking about a lot of things as it relates to this material world that we live in. The general premise of the series has been that we are, we are being sold a, a version of what, is, of what life is all about, that is just a counterfeit version, and it contradicts what Jesus said. He told us that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In the parable of the rich fool, which we looked at in week one of this series. And yet, there is this message, you can sense it, that what life is about is accumulating things, or accumulating money, or having a, a comfortable lifestyle, or, having, or achieving power, or recognition, or a certain position. Whatever it might be that's the motive, there's a lot of uh, messaging in our world that tells us that what, what, truly, what life truly is about, it is found in the abundance of possessions or the abundance of wealth. And it's just not true. That's poison for our hearts. Poison for our hearts of what we were created truly to be. Because we were created, as we talked about in week two, we were created to know, love, and derive our meaning and purpose and direction from God. That's what we were created for. And so when we, when we actually get that kind of thing from our stuff or from our accounts or whatever, then we're chasing after the wrong kind of God. And so we also talked about after that that when we allow this to happen, it becomes a barrier. When we looked at the rich young ruler, it becomes a barrier between us and God when those things be, uh, are really taking our attention in that way. And so we need to consciously fight to do what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, to serve the right master. Not, not to serve money, not to serve mammon, but to serve God, because we cannot really do both. We cannot do both effectively, and if we, are, if we are divided, then we are not given fully to God. And he wants our whole hearts. That's what he ultimately wants, because it's also what's best for us in the end. And so we want to pursue him with everything that we are. Not be divided. We want to build our treasure in heaven, where it will last into eternity, not here on earth, where it will perish, um, or... And, or we will perish, whichever comes first, and we no, no longer get access to those things. They don't come with us. 
So, if we find ourselves last week, as we said, in a position of need, we are also called not to worry because our Heavenly Father is going to take care of us. So today we're going to wrap up this series talking about the role of generosity, the role of giving in this whole puzzle. Because there are commands in the Old Testament and the New Testament that relate to giving and generosity. Why? Why why are those there? And what what is that all about? First, I want to start off, before we jump into that, we'll talk, we'll, we'll have plenty of time to unpack that idea. Um, because it also I, I recognize it is one of those things that makes us uncomfortable sometimes to talk about giving and generosity in the church. You're like, oh, here we go again. Uh, the church is talking about money. Um, because, and there's some legitimate reasons for that, that we're uncomfortable. Sometimes we think about some scandals or issues that have gone on in our world. Uh, and our mind goes there. We, we wonder why, um, what the motive is behind it all. And we'll address that in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about what the biggest giver in the Bible gave to God. I want to show you what the biggest giver in the Bible gave to God. I've got right here, these are Hasmonean Jewish coins from 103 to 30 BC to 37 AD. Somewhere in that time range as they dated them, which puts you right in the life of Christ. This is what we have now called, uh, deemed the widow's might, okay? I've actually got two of them. Uh, for my time in Israel, I think there's a photo that can go up uh, on the screen where you can see what those look like. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a great shot because I took it with my phone uh, early this morning. Uh, <laughs> but this is, if you want to see them up close, you can fi- I'll carry them around after service. You can come find me. Um, they're obviously very old and worn, but you can get an idea... I mean, really, in ancient times, like, the coin, like, actually gets its value from, from, like, the metal that makes it up in a lot of ways. So, unlike today, where, like, I think the penny might cost more to make than it's, it's worth in our currency. But in, in this day, like, this is a tiny little coin. They were, they were, this is a tiny little coin. This, this is what we're going to read about right here in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Jesus is with his disciples. It says in verse 41, he sat down, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. So calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. So there's a lot that we can clean from this short passage, what he taught uh, his disciples about this, this sort of this object lesson that played out right in front of them, this, this, this lesson from how people were behaving. And he's observing. I mean, there's, there's, there's a, a whole sense of showiness that surrounded religion in this first century time. And, um, and scholars think that there was, there was something, there was a little bit of pomp and circumstance when it came to giving, especially if you were making a large gift. You would do stuff to draw attention to yourself. And instead of doing it secretly, privately, between you and God, you would do it in a loud and boisterous way if you were giving a lot. But then there was this woman who came up and just very subtly put in her two small copper coins. Not having any pride in what she was doing in in the sense of making herself feel uh, puffed up and, and, and worthy, but just quietly giving what she had. We don't know how Jesus knows that this is all she had to live on, but he had that way of being able to know what's going on in people's hearts and lives. And so as he observes this, he teaches his disciples some lessons that come out of this. And we have tons of lessons about giving throughout 
the whole, the whole New Testament, throughout the whole scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. And some of the lessons that we learn, they come right out of this passage. Some of them we ex- extrapolate from other places in the Word. Um, and, and when we think about, again, this topic of giving, why does Jesus talk about our money so much? Why is generosity so encouraged? Uh, Howard Dayton said this, giving is not God's way of raising money. It is God's way of raising people into the likeness of his son. I'm going to read that again. Giving is not God's way of raising money. It is God's way of raising people into the likeness of his son. That's really the big idea that, you know, in a lot of ways that I want us to walk out with. And that I want you to understand from our position here at Oak Point Canton. Uh, I, I, would, I want you to give, but not for the sake of Oak Point Canton's budget primarily. I want you to give because God wants to do something in your heart like he wants to do something in my heart through giving, through generosity. Through giving in a, even in a way that's sacrificial, that, that costs something. Because as we look at this widow, as she gives, the reason she's commended is because she's giving in such a way that it was sacrificial. Rich people are giving out of their wealth. They, they were giving all sorts of things, but they weren't going to miss it. She was going to give, and she was going to miss it. She was going to feel it in that sense but also see God provide for her. So we, we, we give, and, and here, and I've said this before, I think in this series, but I've said it before many times. If there is any doubt or questioning in your mind, I'm just going to let you right off the hook uh, with this right away uh, about giving to Oak Point Canton or versus someplace else. Like find another place where you'll feel good about giving to another church or whatever to support ministries of the kingdom and then give there. It doesn't matter. That's fine. If, there, if there's a, a question in your mind, go do that. But what the most important thing is to have this sense of what God wants to teach you through giving, through giving, uh, even when it hurts and up to a, the point where it hurts, to give to something in order to increase your faith, to be raised into the likeness of his son. Not so the church can raise money, but so that God can raise us into the likeness of his son. But I want to talk about five things with the time we have left. Five things that giving does. Some of these things are accomplished in us. Some are accomplished through us. But giving does at least five things that we see strongly throughout the course of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Romans 8.32 says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Here's what giving does. It allows us, giving allows us to be like God. Giving allows us to be like God. One of the things about God is that he, at his core, is generous. At his core, he's a giving God. And what Jesus came to do for us is the greatest gift of all time. He didn't even spare his own son. He gave us everything. He gave us extravagantly. He gave to us extravagantly. That story of the prodigal son, we all are familiar with that, that wording, the idea of the prodigal coming home. We think that word prodigal in our minds because of the way it, it gets culturally used. Prodigal means someone who's wandered away and come back, right? Wrong. Prodigal actually means an over-the-top gift, like extravagant gift. And the, the prodigal son, this, he's prodigal because he's extravagant in his living. But there's also the sense that the, the, the father in that story is prodigal. And our heavenly father, he is extravagant in his giving to us, in his acceptance of us, in his love for us, in his welcoming of us home to be with him. Our giving allows us to be like God because he is an extravagant giver. We see this uh, passage in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is talking in, 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 the, in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians 
all about giving from one congregation, the, the church in Corinth, giving to other believers who are in a time of need. And as he unpacks these thoughts, he says something I think that is just so important for us as we think about giving and what it does in our hearts and what it does in, in our lives as we imitate God. He says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is how we can be like Jesus as we're giving generously. He's saying Jesus had everything. He was rich in that sense. And yet for our sake, he became poor. He gave his position. He gave up his power. He gave up the authority as God. He gave up his, his seat next to the Father. He went through a, a life, a, a poor life here on earth. And he experienced what that was like, but he was giving to us extravagantly. He poured himself out. This is both literally, he was impoverished, and, and, and figuratively, all the wealth that he had in the sense of being God, he set aside in order to come and to be here with us. So when we give, and Paul is making this exact point in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, when we give, we're being like him because he is a giving God. And he's literally talking about finances being transferred from one congregation to support another. So giving allows us to be like God. God's given to us. We are like him when we are generous. We represent him when we are generous. The second thing that happens when we give, giving reminds us that God is the owner and we are the managers. God is the owner of everything. We are the managers. I, I, think about if you were to um, one day hire a financial advisor for something. You want to make some investments. You're not exactly sure what specific ones, but you have an idea of how you want to build this investment portfolio. And you talk to this financial manager and you give them some instructions of what kind of investments, you know, low risk, I want to be in, you know, whatever, all these different categories of things that I'm not that familiar with. Uh, and you, you're trying to direct them in a certain direction. And instead, they go and they do something completely the opposite. They do a high risk investment. They, uh, they, they, instead of going into mutual funds, they go into a specific stock and it's a startup and it bombs. Like what would happen in that situation? If they are disobeying your wishes as the owner and they're mismanaging, the first thing that would obviously happen is you would, you would fire them. They would no longer be your financial manager, but the second thing is they'd probably be liable for it. They have to listen to the owner uh, of, the, of the funds in, in the direction um, that, that they're being that they're being shown, that they're being pointed, uh, they have to follow that direction. And so it's the same way with us. God says that he, ha he is the owner of everything. And while we're on this earth and in this life, he gives us and entrusts to us a certain amount of whatever, whether it be talent or treasure, to, to manage during this time. And we will be held account for our management of, of his things, of his stuff. So God's instructions to us are to use, the, use our, uh, the finances that he entrusts to us on our needs and for our family, also to enjoy it, but to be generous, to be generous. He does not want us to hoard it. He does not want it to become of first importance in our lives, but to use it to honor him. And so when we take the mindset that we don't own anything, that all belongs to God, that this is a temporary assignment, that it's just management for this life, it can change our outlook on how we view our things. First Chronicles 29, 14, this is when they're preparing to uh, build the temple for God in Jerusalem. 
Uh, David's speaking. He doesn't get to build the temple, but he kind of gets to make the plans for it. In verse 29, 14, he says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? They're giving stuff to the temple treasury in, in preparation. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. That's the heart and attitude behind giving. When we give, we're saying, God, we're just giving to you only what comes from your hand to begin with. It started with you, it ends with you, it belongs to you, and I am just a manager of these things. So giving, it, it causes us um, to, to really, uh, in a certain sense, to, to remember and recognize and remind us of the fact that we are not the owners, we are just the managers. And the owner gets to determine how we manage those funds. And so we want to follow that. We want to follow that. The, the next thing that giving does, the third, third area, is that giving causes us to be more dependent on God. Giving causes us to be more dependent on Him. This is a super important part of it. If you think of the widow in this scene, the dependence that she's showing on God as she gives to Him really all that she has left to live on and saying, now it's up to God to provide. Most of us are not going to be in that position. But Jesus would be okay if we put ourselves in that spot. It's extreme. It's difficult. But he, he does not condemn this decision. And he, he reinforces the, the sacrifice of the giving that, she is, that, she is, uh, that she's pouring out in this moment. So when we give sacrificially, we are making a statement that we need to depend on God. That we depend on him more than the material things around us. We talked about this a couple weeks ago to a degree when we were talking, uh, when we had our Ezra 8 day, annual day of prayer. And we declared a fast for those who wanted to participate in a fast for that day. One of the things that fasting does is it helps us to remember that, as Jesus said, I do not live on bread alone, but I live on the words that come forth from the mouth of my Father. As we, as we make the statement of I'm going to withhold from food and things like that, we get to experience him coming, God coming through for us. We get to experience a dependence level on him that's a little bit deeper in those moments. God, God, giving causes us to be more dependent on God in those moments. And when, we're, when we are more dependent on him, we find that he does provide for us. Malachi 3.10 says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The Old Testament had this concept of tithing, 10%. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. This is, I think, the only time in the Bible that God calls on his people to test him. We're not really supposed to test God, but he says, in this case, test me in this. Give generously. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see what happens. I will provide in those times. I will open the floodgates and pour out more blessing for you. Now, we have to be careful. We have to tread lightly here because there is, there, there's, a, there's a gospel message out there that, that's called the, the prosperity gospel or the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And the I, basic premise of the prosperity gospel is if you are living the way that God calls you to live, then he is going to make things easier for you. He is going to give you material wealth He's going to protect your physical health, and he's going to cause you to prosper. And um, the, there's several reasons that this doesn't work very well. I'll give you just a couple off the top of my head, because uh, I didn't make notes on this. But one of the reasons this doesn't work is because all of Jesus' followers were persecuted in the first century. 
as he comes and he, and he calls and he charges them out with a gospel message, um, one betrayed, so now you're down to 11, 10 of the 11 were put to death for their faith. The last one died while in captivity. And so we, we see that it's not, Jesus does not promise to make things smooth and easy. That is not a guarantee that we have. So health, wealth, prosperity, gospel, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in that sense. We, we are not given that promise. There are times when Israel is given that promise sort of as a national promise. Like, hey, if you, if you, are, uh, if you are obeying me, then things are going to go much better for you. And in general, as a general rule in life, as you're obeying God, you're going to cause less problems on yourself. You know, there's going to be less dysfunction in your life. So in that sense, it does kind of work itself out. But the idea that, oh, when I'm obedient and when I'm doing the right things, all the stuff goes smoothly. And when I'm disobedient, then stuff goes wild and crazy. Now, it is true that God teaches us, even if we're like, we might be on a great track, okay? But not one of us is perfect. Remember this. We might be on a great track and some bad stuff happens in our life. He can still use that to teach us. But he's not doing it just because, like, it's not a one-to-one situation here. Because a lot of times what will happen is like, you know, if you're in a health, wealth, prosperity gospel kind of church, you, you'll go to, to leadership and be like, oh, all these things, I, I've been sick, uh, my family, you know, we've been having these struggles, there's been financial difficulty, there's been this or that, and they're like, well, you must be disobeying God in some way. That is not, that is not a biblical way of looking at those circumstances. There are always things we can learn through trial and difficulty and struggle. Um, but at the same time, God does repeatedly throughout the scriptures tell us he will provide for us. And particularly when we're willing to give and we're generous, we will experience what I like to call God's accounting. That his accounting is not, that doesn't work out the same way our math does because we'll give and things will go away, but then we'll find, well, we have enough. Maybe we even have more than what we felt like we had before. And we sense this. I think part of it's even just our mindset. It's kind of like when we go to God in prayer and he changes our hearts. Sometimes our circumstances don't change the way we were intending them to initially, but he changes our hearts in the midst of seeking him in prayer. Same thing happens when we're generous. Our dependence moves and shifts away uh, from on ourselves and on our stuff to being more centered on God. But this is a concept, an idea that's, that's repeated in the New Testament as well. It's not just in Malachi. It's also in 2 Corinthians, just the following chapter that from the one we looked at before where Paul is, is challenging people to give uh, for the good of this other congregation. In verse, in verse 10, uh, it says, Now to he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply, supply that's God, by the way. Uh, now he, God, who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So we will be enriched so that we're generous. We can be more generous when we show generosity. That's what God will do. He will, he will bless us and he will allow us to be more generous. He will continue to take care of our needs. And so it's not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's not always even a one-to-one, -one, but as a general principle, this is how God's counting kind of works. We de show depends on him, and he proves himself faithful in the dependence that we have on him. And we find that we have enough, and oftentimes even more than enough, to continue to be generous for him. So giving causes us to be more dependent on God. Number four, giving makes a real difference. Giving actually has an impact on ministry, on God, on the kingdom, on, uh, on 
organizations and on individuals. When we are generous, we actually can make an impact in our world. And we, we got a little flavor of this from the last verse, but if we just continue on in that same passage and read verse 12, he says, this service that you perform, talking about giving to this other congregation, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. It results in praise and thanksgiving. It results in other people being grateful for God's provision and it comes through us when we're generous. That is a privilege. That is a great privilege. When we give and God uses our gifts and it causes to reflect back praise and thanksgiving to God, that's a blessing to be able to play that role in something and to know that God is receiving praise because of a way that you have been, you have served in that role of, as the provider. And he calls us to do this in a lot of different areas. He calls us to go out and share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus because they need good news just like we need good news. And so as we share the gospel, we're the mouthpiece. That's a great privilege to be used by God in that way. As we're generous and we give to someone who's in need or we give to kingdom purposes and we see God do things in the world through that, we see that it's not us, it's him. So we can't get puffed up. It's, we see him moving through those times. Even when we're sharing the gospel, it's, it's our mouth moving. It's his words. It's his truth. It's his reality. It's his spirit moving in another person's heart. But as he accomplishes things for his kingdom, we get the sense of satisfaction of living into our purpose. Not pride of like, look what I did, but look what God did. And he, he gave me the privilege of using me through it. That is a great privilege to be able to live and, and function within that space. And it, and it really increases our faith as we see God making a real difference through the things that we're doing. One of those areas is through our giving and our generosity. When we give, it makes a real difference, and that increases our faith, and it helps us to want to pursue kingdom things more. That's how he builds us up. That's how he uses giving, not, not to raise money for himself or his church, per se, but to raise people in the likeness of his son. Giving makes a real difference. Last, fifth and final, giving is the antidote for materialism. Giving is the antidote for materialism. This is a big one in the context of the series that we're in right now. Because we live in a world where we are inundated with messages, with advertisements. This is really hard to measure. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, just astronomical numbers thrown out there. If you Google this, you'll find that I think back in something like 2007 or, or 2010, something like that, that they were, they were estimating 5,000 advertisements per day, and that today they're, they're estimating 10,000 advertisements per day. And then there are other people that go, that's not true. That's not even close. It's more like 100. I don't know what the number is, whether it's 50 or 10,000. I just know there's a lot of noise in our world. And I'd be surprised if it's, if it's not getting close to the thousands uh, in, a, in a day, depending on your use of social media, how much TV, radio you listen to, if you leave the house that day and drive past a bunch of billboards. And, and you know, whether it's through our ears or eyes, we are getting a lot of messages about things that we need, things that we should want, things that will fulfill our lives. We're being inundated constantly. And it doesn't go away in today's world because we carry around with us these little, these little computers that fit in our pocket. And when our email dings with the next offer and coupon, 
you know, it, we know about it because it, it makes a noise or it vibrates or whatever, and we, we, get, we get alerted to that constantly. These messages are coming to us all the time, and we are living in a noisy culture. Even when we're not directly being advertised to, we're watching a show and we're being sold a lifestyle that we think we, we ought to have, what we should, we should want if we're pursuing life that is truly life or life to the full. Um, but that's not the life to the full that Jesus is providing for us and tells us that truly is life to the full. That's, that's a counterfeit version. When we receive, we need to give generously so we don't begin to trust or put hope in our money. It's the antidote for materialism. One of our, we've been looking at mainly teachings of Christ, but I think just about every single week we have flipped over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 where Paul addresses Timothy and tells him how to address the wealthy people in his congregation because it's just so direct and, and I think helpful for us as we think about materials, whether we consider ourselves wealthy or not. But he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will, live up, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Direct command to Timothy to teach the people who are rich in his congregation. Teach them this. Teach them not to put their hope in wealth because it's uncertain, but to put their hope in God who's the provider of all things and to whom all these things belong ultimately anyway. And he does provide them for our enjoyment so we're not to shun the good things that he gives us and, and to run from, from wealth or run from possessions. It's not that there, there's two extremes to this. There's also the idea that having anything is evil. And that's not true either. We don't get that, we don't get that from, from the New Testament. That he provides it for us. We're allowed to say to our Heavenly Father, thank you. But it needs to, it needs to be about the giver, not about the gift that we center our lives on. But then he gives them commands for how, for, for really how to prioritize things. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, just like Jesus had taught us, we can lay up treasures. We, can, we can't take it with us, but we can send it ahead. And we do that by being generous, by, be, by doing good, uh, by being willing to share, by being rich, not just in wealth, but rich in good deeds, rich toward God. Giving is the antidote for materialism. We watched a short video earlier in the series uh, about a plant. Uh, with, I'm drawing a total blank. What is that kind of plant called that bites things? Venus flytrap, thank you. I'm like, where'd that go? Uh, okay, so it clamps down, if you recall this, it clamped down on, a, on like a pepper or something, and it, it slowly started to kill the plant because it was holding on to this thing that was not good for it. Uh, in the same way, I've heard that you can catch a monkey by putting something sweet in a jar where the, the, the hole to get into the jar is thinner than the jar itself, and when the monkey's making a fist, it won't be able to fit out. So it puts its hand in like this, grabs the thing, and then can't pull its hand out of the jar. Now, I have no idea if this is true or not, but the imagery is great, right? And I have seen monkeys in the wild before. Uh, I, on a mission trip to Zambia, um, I went several times actually to Zambia, and at the end of the trip, there was always a debrief time, and where we were staying, there were a lot of monkeys. It was like this nicer hotel where they had some food out, you know, they had this, this restaurant, and there was food out, it's kind of open air. 
and um, they had a little bit of an overhang roof. I mean, those, the monkeys would get in there, like all the way up. One time I was getting an omelet made, and I turned around, and there was a baboon, like on the fruit table right behind me. It's terrifying. Um, but then the little guys, they were, they were the real troublemakers. I mean, they, they, there would be sugar out on the tables for coffee and stuff like that. They'd just come up and grab whole handfuls of sugar packets and get out of there. They had a whole team at this, at this hotel uh, of guys walking around with slingshots to be monkey diverters, like getting them away from the people. Like that was their whole job. I'm not even kidding you. Um, and it looked like a pretty fun job, not going to lie. Uh, these guys were troublemakers. One time in the morning, there was one at the table right next to us. And Mackenzie, like she parented this monkey. Like she looked at it as if it could understand her. It was like, no. And he just looked at her, grabbed all of the, all of the sugar packets and took off. Like... So I could believe it. You know, they are stubborn about what they want to go after. And they reach their hand in this little jar, maybe cut or a hole cut in the ground where it's not going to move on. And they grab onto it. And even though now they're stuck and the hunter's coming up, they won't let go. They're just so stubbornly holding on to this thing. I think that giving is the way for us to practice letting go. Something that's not good for us, that can be poison to our hearts drawing us and pulling us away from God to let go, to withdraw our hand and realize it's all his. And realize it's not about the accumulation of these things. It's not about the thing that's in the jar. That's not it. That's not life that's truly life. I can let it go and pursue him. Giving is the antidote for materialism. And not just giving a little bit, giving, giving in a sense of, of really wanting God to be honored with it, not giving a minimal amount. And, but there's, there's, you know, it, really, Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. It's just on the person's heart. Like, no one's, I'm not trying to tell you what to give or how to give. But I think when we give sacrificially, we were really entering that, that place of being, of saying, this is the antidote for materialism. This is me letting go of stuff as my main focus in life and pursuing God with that. It's the best weapon that we have to fight materialism. Generosity is the best weapon we have to fight materialism in this life. It just breaks that bond. There's something about it that just breaks that bond that we have with our stuff and with our money. So giving allows us to be like God, to imitate God as we walk through this life. Giving reminds us that God is the owner. We are just the managers. Giving causes us to be more dependent on God Giving makes a real difference in our world. We can have that feeling and that sense of being used by God because he's using what he's doing through us. Um, and and that's, that's an awesome and fulfilling feeling. And lastly, giving is the antidote for materialism. He calls us to be generous people. And it's not so he can raise money, but so he can raise people in the likeness of his son. His son who came to earth to die on the cross for our sins as a an act of generosity towards us. Just an amazing act of generosity towards us. Once again, that verse in, in 2 Corinthians, verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's what Jesus came to do on the cross. And we observe that, we celebrate that, and we reflect on that uh, regularly as the people of God. The church has been doing uh, this act of communion and the act of baptism to point back to what Jesus has done for us for centuries. Because he commanded it of us. 
And so we come together, and it's called communion because we're communing with God. We're also in communion with one another. We do this regularly reflect the greatest act of God's generosity toward us. We do this as an affirmation of the gift that we have received from him. And that's why it's important that our, we're in the right spot with our hearts, that we have received a gift from him, that uh, this, is, this is indicative that we have started an individual relationship with Christ. If you're not sure where you are on that, we would love to talk to you more about what that looks like, to say yes to the free gift of salvation that we have available to us through Christ. And we would just say, you know, it probably makes the most sense to wait and have that conversation or just to receive him if you know what that looks like. You just receive him. It's very simple. You just say yes to the gift that he's offering. And then you can take your first true communion. But we're doing this as an affirmation of the gift that we have received. And we reflect on we, what Jesus did for us, number one, what Jesus has done for us. And number two, where is our heart right now as it relates to our Lord? Where are some areas, of, some things maybe we need to confess when we come into, step into communion, it's always a great time to spend some moments giving things back to him and confessing things to him. And we know that when we confess that he will forgive us. So we have an assurance of that salvation, assurance of his forgiveness when we have a relationship with him. And so that's what communion is about. That's what we do during this time. We approach him. It's a, it's a somber time. We approach him with some, a sense of seriousness, just reflecting on what he did allowing his spirit to search our hearts and reveal anything to us that we, mean, we may need. And just, uh, again, going over the fact and affirming the fact that we have received the greatest act of generosity from him during this time. So I'm going to give us a few moments. We'll have some moments of quiet here. Just to reflect silently between ourselves and God what it is that he has done for us and where our hearts are in relationship to him. And then in a little bit, we'll start, you'll start to hear some music pick up for a little while, and then we'll be stepping into one more song of worship. It's a song that sort of became our theme song throughout the course of this series, that our worth is not in the things that we own, but our worth comes from Him. It all points back to Him. So during this, this time of quiet, spend some time reflecting, and when you're ready, you can take the elements of communion right where you are. We're not going to do them together. We do them in different. We do this in different ways. Uh, but today, we'll just take it when you are when you are ready. When you are, have spent that time praying and reflecting, and you feel ready, take your elements, and then we'll close together in the song of worship. So let's spend a few moments reflecting. <laughs>